Richard Alpern, the Tijuana Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And who it follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. He actually does not so much today analyze all of the baseball that exists, but he proposes a baseball that doesn't exist. On Monday, Dave Cameron published a post at uh, Fangraphs.com, which included a proposal for a baseball-like game, a baseball-like game that would consist of three three-inning games uh, taking place on any given uh, scheduled day. We discussed that at some length, and if not that itself, uh, at least use that as an entree to discussion of the way that rules construct the game of baseball. Listening, uh, also listening to this edition of Fangraphs Audio will reveal the relevance of this statement. Yeah, I think the justification was we get to drink more. The, the relevance of that statement to classical literature. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. to an anecdote you appear to have been having a uh, conversation with two drunk people they they weren't drunk they were drinking two two people who were drinking right i am not good at evaluating the state of drunk people until they're like fall down drunk and then i'm like oh they're drunk yeah they're definitely drunk on on the way to drunk i'm not sure where they were well it is a scale uh it is a scale i guess well like the legal limit legal limit's pretty low usually in most places yeah, I would, the, these people probably shouldn't have driven and didn't. Good. For the yeah. Good. And well, you were there. I was there. You were there with him. So, can you? Are you allowed to um, to divulge their identities? Uh, yes. Sight readers will have heard of them. Uh, David Appleman and Mike Petriello. Oh yeah, that was going to be my guess because uh, you may or may not know Mike Petriello was recently a guest on Fangrass Audio. I do know. He mentioned that it went for about a week and a half. He made the oh the uh, yeah the interview was quite long, yeah. uh, but yeah. he also mentioned he mentioned I believe uh, he said it on air with that he would be that you would and Appleman would be in New York. We were. Sounds like it sounds like there was some high powered business going on. Uh, I don't know about high powered. It was more slap hitting business. Okay. We were we were hitting the ball to the right side. Yeah, but then you got to spend some time with uh, David Appleman and Mike Petriello. I did. Two people who generally speaking know how to behave themselves. That's true. They behave themselves just fine. Yeah. And I will also say that <clears throat> despite the fact that they can – well, they're definitely nerds in, in some ways. They also – I think they have crossover uh, potential or crossover mm. ability. Like Allen Iverson crossover? Yeah, I right. can't see either of one of them breaking down a defender. Yeah, No, but no, no. I think that they, uh, they're they able to communicate with non-nerds as well fr- frequently. This is probably true. Yeah. yeah. And uh, where were you? You're in the city. Where, where in the city were you? Do you remember? Uh, we were at some bar called the Brooklyner, Brooklyn Niner, something like that. It was, uh, it was, it was a bar that was weird. <laughs> yeah. We, thankfully we found this like little back table away from the crazy, but there was a lot of crazy. Going was there on. a lot of noise? It, they had like a little DJ person playing uh, terrible music yeah. in the corner. She was almost certainly high. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then there were people like dancing inappropriately uh i i would gauge it as inappropriate they seem to be enjoying it a a good deal yeah the um one thing i've noticed about uh, going out in brooklyn or new york generally is two things i'd say actually 
is that one it tends to be it tends to be rather expensive. Yeah. Um, and I would I would actually say more expensive than for example Paris France in many cases, um, especially once you include tip because uh, in Paris you don't have to tip really. Right. Yeah. Uh, this this was not a. I mean I drink water so I I did just fine. But I would imagine the other two were poor by the end of the night. Yeah. And then the other thing is uh, it's also quite crowded usually. That's the my general this been my general feeling. Yeah, on a Friday evening, uh, what seemed to be a somewhat popular bar. We were actually in Manhattan at a bar named after Brooklyn. I, I don't know exactly where we were. Right. Uh, I just kind of followed them. You were but, in uh, yeah. Yeah, but it, it was definitely loud and crowded and uh, maybe not my scene. But, uh, you know, I enjoyed discussing things with, with Senior Appleman and, and Petriello. Yeah, no, so you stumbled upon a proposal. Or it sounds like you stumbled upon I assume... The, the flicker of the idea must have existed at some point for you. I, I think I thought of it the night before laying in bed, like just before I fell asleep in one of those like not yet quite completely asleep, but not really completely awake times. You have like those ideas and uh, and that one came to me the night before. Right. And the, and the proposal at its most basic level is that you would play – Three three inning games on any given day, as opposed to just one nine inning day, one nine right. inning game. The proposal is basically to break what we now know as a baseball game into thirds uh, and play three, like a set of three games within one larger match. Right, and you evoke. Um, it, it, no, it's not. It's not exactly the same. You note this, but it has, in, in terms of the scoring, there it's not. It's not entirely unlike tennis in the sense that you have like. Uh, sort of modular games uh, within an overall match. Right. I mean, there are right. So tennis is a good example of this. People in the comments, I think, have mentioned cricket, uh, but there are sports where uh, you don't just play one long game. You play several mini games within a game, and I think even you know the postseason is basically like this in that uh, it's one contest over seven games. Uh, and we call that a series, and then, you know, the best of seven, best of five, whatever the length of the series is, is the winner. And so this would just be taking that concept slightly, applying it to a day, but also making each individual game count. So the equivalent would be in tennis if, you know, someone wins 6-2-6-2, they would win both games, and both of those would count, where if it went three games, the person who lost the match would still get credit for winning one of the three games. Right, and that's and that would be the difference. It, it, it's as if, if if in tennis, they added up how many sets you won. Correct. Um, or like your, like your winning, your set winning percentage. Yes, exactly. That's, that would be the equivalent of this proposal. Which I guess, I, I mean, I, I, I haven't thought about this, and I don't know what the state of tennis metrics is. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure there's something there, um, but uh, I mean, I, I, you would you would assume that by the end of the year, that the people who who had won the most matches would be pretty similar to the people who had won the highest percentage of sets. I mean, I would imagine, knowing right. what I know about tennis, you ha- that would like be tautology, basically. Like, right. if you don't win more sets than you lose, you can't win matches. <laughs> right, but I wonder if there are certain tennis players, especially. Well, it would it would happen. Probably more often in the men's circuit because they have certain tournaments where they play they play uh, five set matches. But I wonder if at the end of the year there are players who, given the number of sets they've won, you would assume that they would have won more or fewer matches. Like right. like you know maybe they've just lost a bunch of matches three to two, which would be kind of depressing, but also not something that you would generally 
uh, imagined to be something that's sustainable. Right. I mean, there could be people who vary from, like, you know, they they blew out a bunch of people and then they lost a bunch of close ones in the finale. But, you know, uh, I think, and not that this needs to turn into a tennis discussion, but from what I understand of talking to Appleman, who is actually a giant tennis fan, uh, there are there's a wide variance in talent in tennis where the top three are apparently, like, miles ahead of everyone else. So I think when you have a huge variance in talent, uh, a huge spread in talent from top to bottom, you don't necessarily get these um, kind of variable numbers where the, the players' results don't look as – don't match up with their talent level. That usually happens in sports where players are more evenly matched. Right. It's interesting because there does seem to be some correlation between the number of people involved in a particular – uh, match, and then the, uh, I guess the, the, in the, the sort of parity that exists within the league that organizes that match. Because, like, for, for example, in basketball, if you have, usually, generally speaking, if you have the best player on your team, there's, there's a, the floor, I, I'm, there are exceptions to this, obviously, but if you have the best player on your team, the floor for how many uh, games you can lose is pretty, um, well, what, what, the floor for how many games you win, I guess, is pretty high. Right. That basically, once you get, I mean, you know, one-on-one sports, there's only one variable. So the quality of the player determines the outcome most of the time, you know, excluding luck and randomness and those kinds of things. Uh, but once you start adding, you know, a five-player game, and now there's more variables and it's difficult to have five players who are all definitively better than the five opponents. And then once you get up to baseball and you've got, you know, nine and then include relievers maybe 12 or 13 guys play per day uh in football you've got 22 to 25 guys the more players you add into the field the more even everything's going to be if you have some kind of hundred on hundred game uh it would probably just be a total toss-up right and, and the other thing with baseball right is that both a um you have to bat every player who's in who's on your team with the exception of the pitcher in the american league has to bat and they have to bat in a specific order so so the, the sort of equal – it's not like like in basketball you can pass it to um, Kevin Durant all the time. Right. And so he can have a higher work rate essentially or higher usage rate. Right. And you can't do that in baseball. And then the other thing is you can't really control I – mean, you can control where you put fielders, but you can't control uh, like you know the frequency with which the other team hits the ball to those fielders. Right. Yeah, it's hard to leverage uh, your talent level in baseball. You can do it in relief – pitching and situational like selective usage of, of relievers and you can hit your best hitters at the top of the order uh, but beyond that you know it's a pretty balanced spread of, of opportunities for the best players to the worst players and I actually think this is one of the ideas I can, one of the reasons I kind of love this idea not that it would work in major league baseball I'm, I'm aware of that but as a sport of itself a different version of baseball to move some plate appearances away from the Billy Hamiltons of the world and, and give them to guys who can actually hit while also creating an opportunity for guys like Billy Hamilton to be, you know, pinch runner of the day. In this weird scenario where we're playing three mini games, you could have a guy like Billy Hamilton who has one skill of running. He can pinch run three times. He's already on base three times that day. If you go to the ballpark, you're going to see Billy Hamilton uh, potentially with three or four or five stolen base attempts because he's going to start on first base when someone else gets on for him uh, and you create an entire cottage industry of position player specialists, uh, the defensive specialist who never has to hit because you just pinch hit for him every time he comes up. 
Uh, I think that it, it turns uh, baseball into something maybe more interesting than watching some player trying to do something he's just not capable of doing well. Yeah, so it, it's interesting, and I don't know if anyone mentioned it in the comment section of your post, but there is actually – so there's a there's a cricket uh, – there's a sort of cricket um, – a form of cricket known as 2020, um, and it is it takes place uh, it 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 takes place it, it's actually condensed to three hours, um, and I think it's just maybe they do 20 overs. It's 20 overs for each team. Uh, I don't know the precise. I, I forget the precise uh, uh, rules, but the idea is that it, it is shortened. It's actually become a sort of it's become a game that people play. Uh, and the, you know, there's there's a league. I've, um, I I know dreadfully little about it is the point, but I know that it exists, and I know that sort of to your point is there was an idea to say, well, what's a you know what's a form of this game we love that we could play that might have uh that might have a little bit more urgency. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I expected the response to be what it basically what it was is I like nine inning baseball. What's wrong with it? Let's not fix it. But I, the point isn't to you know change Major League Baseball in the, in the way that it's played. I understand that this will never be adopted and it would ruin the history of the statistics and make comparisons from prior years impossible. Uh, but in the same way, like there are many kinds of poker, right? So there's seven card stud and Texas Hold'em and, you know, like all kinds of games fall under the umbrella of poker. Right now we have one game that falls under the umbrella of baseball. I think it would be interesting to see this maybe adopted as a second version of baseball specifically in in uh different levels than major league baseball's regular season uh i think like spring training would this would be a fantastic use of a spring training game at least as an experiment to see it happen once or twice uh or you know as i mentioned in the world baseball classic uh which is already struggling with uh how they use pitchers and and how they deploy talent in certain ways uh it's a you know an every four-year event so you've got no historical statistics that matter. You're not trying to tie anything to history. It's a new event. Uh, or if the Olympics wanted to do something interesting with baseball, or even in the minor leagues. I think if you put this in, like, low A ball, and you gave people who came to the game, who realistically are just there for the sport, or for the for the stadium, the weather, probably the between-innings entertainment, because it's a, a lot of children uh, go to A ball games, and it's, a you know, appealing to families. If you took away uh, kind of the the innings that don't matter, and just said, okay, we're going to play three, or even, you know, maybe you shorten it to two in the minor leagues and you only play six or seven innings. We're going to tighten everything up, make it a closer affair, make every inning matter more. I think there's a version of this game that could be really interesting at the non-major league level. So would there be then 400 and... Two games per year? <laughs> right. So you'd have like 486 games instead of 162 if you adopted this. So, again, the default. This will never happen in Major League Baseball unless there's some kind of uh, catastrophic change. And This isn't a serious solution for what Major League Baseball should do for their regular season. But if they did, you'd be looking at 486 games per year, uh, and a good team would probably win about the same number, maybe a little less because now the spread – uh, in talent wouldn't be quite as large, so maybe a good team would win 55% instead of 60% or something, but you'd still have teams winning more than they lost, but the number of games played would be, you know, tripled. All right, well, let me see this. I, let me make the caveat once for the last time so you don't have to keep making it. I understand, and I invite our readers to understand that you are not proposing this to replace baseball as it now stands. Correct. Okay, so we'll just say that. 
Yeah. We've said it. Now we don't have to say it again. Right. I, I think the, the, my guess is, and I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but my guess is the sort of pleasure you take from an experiment like this, or, and one of its uses is it allows you to sort of, it allows you to examine the ways in which the game is constructed now. The rule, I mean, any game is just a collection of rules, right? Yep. And right. Ba- you know, you say you you say you can't go out of this line. Don't go, you can't go out of this line. That's a rule. And you say why? Well, there's no reason. It's not like it's you know, it's not like the the president said that that had to be that way or a deity commanded it. It's just you 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 try and put together the best collection of rules to create a game that, generally speaking, um, fosters uh, some sort of competitive competitiveness, um, and there's hopefully some you know there's it's fair play, but it also is something that um, sort of creates a sense of some sense of urgency. Not that not that every game that we have, uh, I mean, not certainly not every baseball game is urgent start to finish. Right. And I think uh, usually the rules are based on some kind of logistical reasoning. So in talking with Petriello, uh, he was mentioning he plays in a softball league that plays in a park in New York not too far from the water. And if you – so the way their walls are drawn up, the, I guess, right field wall is only like 250 feet away because that's where the water is. So if you hit a, hit a ball into the water, that's a home run for the first two times. And then after that, you start losing runs if you start hitting home runs because you're now losing baseballs and it's costing you money <laughs> to continue playing this game because the balls that go into the water don't come back. So there's like a uh, monetary reason to not allow teams to just continually bang balls into the right field water. Uh, so then they start penalizing you runs and it becomes a strategical decision and when you try to hit one of your two a lot of hit home runs per day, because no one wants to buy 50 new balls every day. Oh, so, so yeah, and that's an excellent thing where you have this constraint, this actual real life constraint outside of the game that ends up, uh, that ends up affecting the game as well. Right. And I think this is one of those things where you can see the genesis of where rules come from. And I think, uh, you know, we can think about where the nine inning rule came from and why they designed games this way. And when baseball was invented 150 years ago, uh, nine innings was the standard for what one pitcher would throw, and it was there wasn't bullpens, there wasn't relievers. The the modern game looks nothing like the game from the 1870s, and so I think it's worth wondering if we were starting baseball from scratch and we knew kind of we had the specialization, we have all the information we have now, we're not throwing any of that away. Would we build one nine inning contest that involved five or six different pitchers, or would we try and design some rules that? Uh, maybe more matched the kinds of talent we have today. Yeah, well, and, and that's what I was thinking when you mentioned that you know you, you sort of invoke this idea of baseball 2.0. But in a sense, in a sense, we're we're even beyond the baseball 2.0 now because you know because there is there is sort of one baseball game, but it's been you know it, it was you know originally um, a sort of combination of rounders and cricket. I've been led to believe. And even that first thing that was called baseball, obviously, you know, the field has the same general shape, they're the same general positions, but there's a, there's enough different between that game and the one we play now to suggest, well, you know, I mean, it depends how much you want to break it up, but it, maybe every rule change, you know, at least creates a fraction of a new game. 
But I think every time you adjust either the rules or the competitors, you're essentially getting a new kind of game. And I think, you know, the kind of baseball that was played without gloves and guys throwing 60 miles an hour is not the game that we're playing today with guys throwing 100 miles an hour. Yeah, I don't I imagine that, like, if you told Brandon Phillips, you're like, here, Brandon, you get to play second base, but also you can't use a glove. Right, a bare head, everything. <laughs> yeah, which he's very good at, to be fair. But I don't think, like, I don't think that any player now would be entirely thrilled with those with those rules, except for the fact that hitting would be pretty easy. It disabled list trips for infielders would be through the roof. You would have, like, bro- broken hands every day. Like, you, would, you would need, like, 17 backup middle infielders. By the way, have you ever um, have you ever had the opportunity to read, um, like, a like a recap from early early 20th or late 19th century games about um, the, the, the injuries that players get? I, I don't recall the injuries specifically. Uh, right. Well, so, like, some of them, I mean, some of them are, like, some of them are, like, syphilis, which is usually, yeah. you know, but the then other... Haas Radboard pitching, probably. Yeah, right. But then other times, um, other times, like, because they, they don't, like, their doctors just don't know that all the injuries, because they, I don't know, because they don't know what as much about the body. So it's, like, you always see wrenched back. There's a <laughs> lot of people who have wrenched body parts. Um, yeah, which is uh, I mean, which is maybe how like you and I might describe it if we like tweaked our back or whatever. But usually, uh, you know, baseball players know a little bit more about their injuries than than the you know layman does. Yeah, science has come a long way. It has, yeah. So I wonder, were you the sort of guy, um, were you the sort of person who, when you were little, like, did you play backyard games where you're like the uh, you know, like the uh, the street is a home run, and if it hits the if it hits the lamp post, that's a grand slam or something like this. Yeah, so I have an older brother, and we played a lot of wiffle ball as a kid. I mean, with just the two of us, it it was basically impossible to play any kind of baseball game. Uh, but we had a backyard that we could uh, kind of play around with, and it was actually like a basically a long rectangle. So it, you know, you could kind of turn it into a, a baseball field and we played different versions of you know where the wall was and you know not too unusual brother type wiffle ball antics uh not a lot of like serious baseball in the streets uh living in the suburbs uh especially where there are not a lot of other kids our age around uh we were basically limited to what we could come up with with two people and a a wiffle wall well yeah so but even then right like that's that's just like another one of those real world constraints so I assume that you you did some work with Ghost Runners. Uh, I think so. I it, my memory is that we got very good at pitching the balls and never that great at hitting them. So I think there were just a, a lot of strikeouts. I think Rob Nyer would have hated our game. He doesn't like Rob Nyer doesn't like strikeouts. He hates strikeouts. He calls it the strikeout scourge. Yeah, but um, the strikeouts happen because the pitches are so beautiful, though. Yeah, he doesn't share your opinion of that. Yeah, because you know that I like nice pitches. You do like nice pitches. Like, for example, Chase Anderson. Did you see Chase? Any of Chase, Chase Anderson's changeup is very good. Oh. I, I will say, of all the types of players you tend to latch on to, I think the ones that you're most correct about are Chase Anderson types. And I, I wonder if this is not another example of a James Shields or one of these guys who's you know, got a pretty good fastball and an amazing changeup that scouts just don't care about and gets ignored by prospect guys and actually is really good. Yeah. Well, and the one exception to to the Chase Anderson situation, or, or what at least has caused doubt for me, is 
that the fact that he did he just did not pitch that well as a as a starter in AAA last year. Right. This is a recent surge. R- right. So he had well no, so he had he was very he was very good. He was like one of the top uh strikeout pitchers for a couple years in the minors. And then he got to AAA and then he had problems there. And he succeeded once moving to the bullpen. But the, I guess uh, Arizona was serious about him working as a starter, so they moved him back down to Double A this year. Um, or alternatively, maybe maybe they just their Triple A uh, starting rotation was full. I actually didn't look into why that was, but he was succeeding again at uh, at Double A, um, where right. he had succeeded previously. But you also have to remember, like uh, I know that when I first started writing for Fangraphs, David Hernandez uh, was in the was in the midst of. I believe leading all of the minor leagues in baseball, uh, or all the minor leagues in strikeouts, which right. he's something he can do as a relief pitcher, but not as a not as a uh, um, not as a starter. Right, but I think Hernandez was a bad command, uh, kind of the, the guy who gets strikeouts because he never throws anything near the zone and gets minor league hitters to swing at pitches they shouldn't swing at. Anderson seems to be more along the lines of a, at least this year, a command guy with one fantastic changeup. And then everything else is kind of mediocre. But sometimes that great change of all you really need. Right. Yeah. Well, because it, I mean, I think that, I'm sure you know more about this than I do. The second that you can neutralize a, a opposing hand yeah. or opposite hand batters, that's like that's, that's a huge that's thing. Huge. That's really the difference between a starter and a and a, and a reliever. And I know people will, uh, you know, talk about velocity and all these other things. The key to being able to get pitches as a starting pitcher is getting out opposite-handed hitters. Almost just by the nature of platoon splits and, and the deception that comes from throwing a ball on the same side of the plate uh, as the batter stands, you're going to be okay. Almost every decent professional pitcher is going to be okay against same-handed hitters. It's pretty rare for a pitcher to get just totally destroyed by same-handed hitters. Uh, so if you can get, if you are an, a good pitcher against opposite-handed hitters, you're 90% of the way to being a good starter. Now I haven't looked up Corey Burns. Uh, I haven't looked up his his split stats, but I don't know if you're familiar with Corey Burns. I am not. I don't know if he even throws harder than 85, but okay. he, he has an amazing changeup. Yep. Um, but that, I assume that's the sort of pitcher who would be a candidate to having problems with who who might who might have that reverse split as a pitcher. Yeah, all right. If you have a a mediocre fastball uh, and no good breaking ball, especially not a slider, which is the pitch that pitchers often use to neutralize same-handed hitters, and your changeup is amazing, then you're probably going to run reverse platoon splits. So in your so actually on on this topic, right? Like in your uh, in 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 this version of baseball, right? Yeah. Uh, how would um, you, you you sort of gesture toward it in in the in the article you wrote? But how would I mean, how would you if you were the manager? And if you were the manager and you had, uh, let's see, I don't know, and you had Jose Fernandez on your yeah. club, um, you're not. This is in a world also where you're not. You don't have to deal with Jeffrey Loria and everything. Right, right. You have like a reason, like a reasonable front office. Um, like how how would you? What would you do with Jose Fernandez? Yeah, I think the pitching side of things is the most fascinating part of this concept. Because I don't actually know. I think, I think platoons would basically go away. Platoons by handedness. Because, uh, situational relievers would not be valuable enough to roster. Uh, if you're, if you're saying, okay, a pitcher who is 
going to pitch in the first game, can't come back into the second and third, which is essentially for health reasons. We don't really want pitchers uh, pitching and then two hours later being asked to pitch again. Um, if they're only going to be able to, to impact one of the three games per day and one or two batters in that game, their impact is probably not enough to be one of the 12 or 13, however many pitchers teams would carry, uh, especially because you're going to have to probably crank through more pitchers per day than you would otherwise, given the number of high leverage situations and the fact that these are higher stress innings, you're probably not going to be able to get as many pitches out of each, out of your kind of your starter or whatever the equivalent of a starter would be your best multi-inning guy. So I think we would switch to a, away from a five starter, seven man bullpen, uh, into something more of like nine guys who go multiple innings and then maybe three one inning specialists to try and come in in the most important situations. Um, and then maybe each team or the team that have a Jose Fernandez or a Clayton Kershaw would adjust and allow that guy to go six or seven, and then everyone else kind of balances around them. Uh, but I think it's not clear that the ideal structure is what we have now, the guy throwing 100 to 110 pitches every five days it might even be better for pitchers to throw 40 pitches every three days. And this game could potentially move pitchers to that kind of, uh, that window where they're pitching more often, but less during that day. So they're not getting up to the pitches 90, 100, 110, where they claim, you know, injuries can happen if your mechanics break down and, and you tire and you're, you're no longer throwing at peak efficiency. So, uh, I think it's how you would handle a guy like Jose Fernandez. I don't know. I think, Maybe I would hold him till the third inning and see if my team was able to get a lead the first couple innings to protect. And then if they do, bring him in in the third and then have him pitch as long as he can, which maybe is five or six innings in this in this new world of baseball. Uh, and if they don't get the lead, then you just have him start the second game and pitch the six innings or you know however long he can go from there. But I don't actually know. I think there's a, a ton of um, secondary factors that would be – have to be considered and maybe we wouldn't even have pitchers throw anywhere near a hundred pitches anymore. Maybe everyone would top out at 40 or 50. Well, so, so most starters, right. Don't, don't, it's typical that they have a throw day in between starts. Isn't that right? Correct. That, that would likely go away in the scenario. Right. And, but what, from your understanding, if you were to explain what the, the, the sort of reason for the throw day existing is, what is that? Well, I think part of it is, to practice things. So you're generally not going to work on secondary pitches in the middle of a season, uh, in the middle of the game. You're not going to be like, well, I wonder how my changeup's coming along. Let's throw it to this hitter and see what he does. Uh, so you do want to have some kind of practice for pitchers. Uh, and, and I think the throw day serves as some ability, some chance for them to work on things and, and improve different types of pitches and work on command. Uh, and I think it's also just part of the, the development process of how pitchers have been groomed to pitch is uh, they they essentially work their way back to full strength by having a throw day where they don't throw all the way. Uh, they're not necessarily pitching at max effort, but it's uh, a way to keep their arm uh, from having to sit around and do nothing for four days in between starts. Right. I suppose it would uh, preserve muscle memory and this sort of thing. That, yeah, right. Yeah. Now, you do mention uh, that a pitcher who uh, – now, if a pitcher leaves a game, if a pitcher leaves a game, he cannot come back for the rest of the day. 
Yep. However, if he finishes game one, for example, he can return for game two, which is which still preserves value for Jose Fernandez and Clayton Kershaw. Right. So essentially, what you're saying is, if a pitcher is pitching well and is not removed by the uh, manager, he can continue to pitch until he is removed. So uh, essentially, it's a continuity uh, where a pitcher can continue to pitch until he is intentionally taken out. What I, what I think when I was coming up with this idea is you don't want to artificially limit the number of pitches that a pitcher who's pitching well can pitch. Uh, that was say I said the word of pitch a lot there. Uh, you don't want to just say, okay, you have this guy who's throwing amazingly well. The rules of the game are going to artificially force him out. Um, so if you know you have a guy on the mound, he's doing well, and you're like, well, I I don't want to remove him for anyone else. The continuity allows him to continue pitching as long as you don't make the decision to take him out in some earlier game. Right, but now here's the the most important question uh, mm-hmm. uh, with regard to that is. How long is the gap for you? How long is that that time between the end of game one and the beginning of game two? It, there is none. It, we basically just okay. So the first game has ended. Now the second game begins. No uh, way, really? Yeah, there's no gap. It is uh, it is basically nine continuous innings with a victor declared after three. Oh, I I don't know about that. Why Why do you want a break? I don't know. I, uh, just to, it, to have a, a – it needs to, to cleanse the palate, as it were, you know? I mean, to have a, have a break and you say, okay, we've completed one brief contest and we will return. I mean, think like think about like hockey, right? I mean, hockey, this is – I mean, essentially the, the thing you're proposing is if, as if whoever won a period in hockey, as if that counted as a win. So – And they take 20 minutes in between. Yeah, so the, the reason for there being – extended period breaks in between hockey is because it's physically exerting and the players need a rest. Mm-hmm. That is not true in baseball. That's After true. three innings of baseball, the guys do not need to go sit and recover on the sidelines to get ready to play again. Uh, so I, I don't see that there would be a logistical need for a break after three innings of baseball. We don't take one now, and you, you don't lay like, oh, man, I've watched three innings. I need a sorbet. Uh, you know, like, uh, I think... And one of the one of the legitimate criticisms I think of this model is that uh, games would likely go into extra innings more often because the third game is going to always start at zero zero, which means you're going to have more games that are that third final game is not decided by mm-hmm. uh, the end of the third inning. So you're going to often need four or five or six innings for that final game in order to be decided. So now you're going to have a, a um, larger percentage of games that are 10 or 12 or 13 innings in total. Uh, the whole day's worth of baseball is 10 or 12 or however many extra innings you need because that third game started 0-0 in the seventh, essentially. Uh, so I think if you are adding in timed breaks in between the games, now you're turning this into a four-hour affair. Yeah, maybe even yeah, maybe even more than four hours, right? Right. So I think you know, in the interest of shortening uh, or not extending any further, I don't see the I don't see a logistical need for a break. If you can make a compelling argument for one, I'm happy to hear it. I, that's unlikely to happen. I'm just saying that uh, that, that you know, what we, I go get a beer now. Can I go get a beer? You can always go get a beer. It, it's in the same stadium that you know this game exists in this universe where uh, beer is plentiful. Yeah, okay, good. As long as beer is plentiful, you send you send a little bit 
like a like a 18th century king when you say when you say (laughs) the wine flows freely and uh, (laughs) honey is available for all and now now it's interesting that you mentioned uh, 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 honey and beer well not honey uh, beer and wine of course though uh, because you were – we started this conversation of – you were having a conversation with two of your colleagues, my colleagues, who were enjoy, themselves enjoying adult beverages. They were. Yeah. And um, so it, what it reminded me of was uh, the uh, Herodotus. Herodotus was a was – a, uh, well, what was he? Was he Greek? You think he was Greek? You think he was Roman? You think he was Greek or Roman? What do you think Herodotus was Greek or Roman if he had to, if he had to put some money on it? Here, I'm going to check it out because it's bothering me. He was he was Greek. He was Greek. Herodotus was Greek. He's famous for writing the histories, which okay. is uh, and in it, in the histories by Herodotus, who apparently lived in the fifth century BC. Fifth century BC, Herodotus uh, discusses the Persians. Uh, the Persians, whenever they had to discuss uh, important matters, uh, they would first get drunk and debate. About the decision, and they would come to a conclusion, a conclusion which they would then, um, a, a, or conclusion or decision which they would then review the next day while sober. And, and alternately, if they came up with a decision while sober, they would review it, uh, after drinking. And, uh, I don't know what the justification was, but the idea was, uh, this is, I probably because when you're sober, you know, you tend to, have be a little bit more critical in thought, but maybe when you're been drinking, uh, you um, there's a, there's some merits. There could be some virtues to the irrational use of your brain. Yeah, I think the justification was we get to drink more. Yeah, well, so there's that too. There's yeah. that angle. But yeah. but now here's the question. You you seem to you seem to suggest that both David Appleman and Mike Petriello were um, that they were intrigued by your idea. Uh, they were. I think Appleman especially seemed to really like it, in part because I think he, I mean, he's drawn to tennis. So anything that makes baseball look more like tennis, he's probably for. I think he would like it if, like, rackets replaced bats. Uh, so, you know, I think there was that aspect that appealed to him. I think also there is some level of interest in making every game, um, uh, or at least every in minimizing the, the low leverage component, which I think uh, if you're going to talk about for the casual fan, when they talk about baseball being boring, there's a good element, uh, a good amount of that that comes from the game getting out of hand early and the rest of the game just not mattering. Uh, where, at least in football and basketball, where you have like trading possessions and there are, there are blowouts certainly, but not maybe not as frequent lull periods where nothing is happening, and they usually don't happen until closer to the end of the game, um, where it becomes clear that one team is going to win and the other is not. Uh, I think it, to remove that aspect had some significant appeal. Right. Now, uh, see, what the Persians would suggest, though, um, that what they would advocate on behalf of is now going back to Appleman and Petriello and – Getting their ideas on the matter now that now that they're presumably sober. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 two forty already uh, Eastern time, so who knows what those guys are doing? Right. Uh, but uh, that would be the correct. That would be the that would be the Persian method. Would be to review to ask them to review their their opinions now that they're sober. Well, we could call them. We could have extra podcast guests. So you could do another two hour podcast with Petriello, just talking about his response now that he's sober. It wasn't. It wasn't two hours. That's ridiculous. Was an hour and a half, I think. Ridiculous notion. 
<laughs> it was very long. Well, David David Abman, neither of them it appears as though are uh, are available via the uh, the calling program I use. So okay. Well, then we will not do that. We will mm-hmm. assume that they still like my idea because it's a good one. Yep. That's it's crazy, and it, it shouldn't happen in Major League, Major League Baseball. We're I, you already said that. We made that caveat. But, but uh, I also, like the idea of a secondary game. I think someone in the comments called it arena baseball. That's not like the worst description of what this would be. Yeah. You said you, you're really trying to hit middle America with this one. Uh, you know, I think there's maybe room for an alternate way to play baseball, uh, especially – in lower levels and where the game itself might not be that interesting to observers. What do you think? What do you think if you were to, to introduce this as a sort of separate sport? Uh, what do you think would be the first uh, the first teams to get to get uh, the first cities to get franchises? I think it'd be like uh, Columbus. Vegas? Huh? No, Vegas. Vegas? Well, I thought Vegas. I thought Vegas didn't have teams. Well, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. There's a minor league team there. I mean, so what? The long-standing rumor is that Major League Baseball will never put a team in Vegas because of the gambling associations. Uh, but I think if you were to create a secondary competitive baseball league to Major League Baseball, or you know, some kind of off-season winter league or something, uh, Vegas would be a prime destination for uh, this kind of thing. And you know, this would be a fantastic gambling event. Uh, I think people who gamble on baseball would would love to make kinds of weird prop bets and, and see a, a different kind of baseball than the one that's, that's currently played. What about Spokane, Washington? No, nothing should ever go to Spokane. <laughs> Except for maybe a nuclear bomb. Sorry yeah. to people who live in Spokane, but I, not my favorite city. You don't like, you don't like the city. What about uh, San Antonio, Texas? Uh, never been there. Heard really good things. I would not, I would not nuke the city of San Antonio. I like them more than Spokane. What about York, Pennsylvania? I'm just trying to think of... Uh, are you just like pointing at random places on a map? Well, it, roughly, yeah. But I was trying to think of um, places where there are where like independent leagues already exist, or maybe like where. What about like D League basketball teams exist? Right. Well, I mean, I think like the Newark Bears or something should try this. Like, you know, they have I don't know, is Tim oh, yeah, Raines Newark. still playing for them? Like, the Newark Bears are like kind of a sideshow of baseball. Uh, and you know maybe they can play the St. Paul Saints and they can do this kind of thing. Yeah, no, the exact the exact list of cities I was looking for really is the ones for the D League, like El Segundo, California, and uh, uh, and uh, Bixby, Oklahoma. Yeah, I don't see this catching on in Bixby. Well, you don't think you don't like the market in Bixby? I think that the five people there don't, wouldn't care. I don't know. The, apparently, they apparently it's a big enough place to to play host to the Tulsa Sixty Sixers. So it's a suburb of Tulsa then? Oh, is that what it, oh yeah, that's right. I mean, if a team that plays there is known as the Tulsa something, then I yeah, guess right. it's but they, the they, Tulsa. But apparently the, uh, the property value, well I think it's well known that the property value in Tulsa is sky high. Uh, <laughs> who doesn't want to live in Tulsa? So you need to, what you need to do is you need to build your stadium outside of Tulsa. Um, because, now how far is it? Well, it's, yeah, it's just outside, yeah right, it's just outside of Tulsa. Not not too far from Sepulpa, if you know what I'm talking about. I do know Sepulpa. Who doesn't know Sepulpa? Also not too far from Coweta. Okay. Which, which could also well, very well not be how you pronounce that. Yeah, I would guess <laughs> you probably screwed that up. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, you're done. You're done here. Yeah. I think it, it worked pretty well. I think the, for me the takeaway is it is there is some pleasure in in examining rules, in, in examining rules in the way that you can – 
the way you can rearrange them to create a different game and what that game might look like. Yeah, no, right. I think I, that the thought exercise was fun for me in the way that it challenged what baseball was and what it would be if you just made some tweaks to some basic structural issues. Right. Right, because as you noted, and I think this is uh, – I don't know how many smart things you said today. This is probably the smartest though, was it's not – the game, the way it's played now is not – is not the way it was played over you know a hundred years ago, right? The game has evolved on its own. Who's to say we couldn't evolve it for it? Right, right. And there's some things you just can't change because, as you noted, it would it would somehow change like the absolute core of of the game. Whereas you know generally the rules that are changed, uh, you know, it doesn't have that sort of the the the, the benefits outweigh the the drawbacks. Right, I think that's always the hope when you change the rules is to improve things. Right, except for the transfer rule. I think we can agree on that. Well, I think the hope, the plan was to make things better. It just was a terrible implementation. All right, you're being contrary. It's time for you to go. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, thank you, Dave Cameron, for joining Fangraphs Audio. Thank you. Yeah, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs and uh, Idea Man. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.